Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Joe McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Kunal Agarwal on the show. Kunal is the founder and CEO of Dope Security, and also fortunate to be joined by Emilio Escobar, CISO of Datadog, who is joining me as a co-host, as he's done on previous episodes. So in this show, we're going to cover the basics of SASE security. What are the components of that? why this market insecurity is growing faster and current enterprise adoptions and challenges. So with that, Kunal, how'd you come to found Dope Security and what was the journey that brought you to this moment? Well, Sean, first off, it's good to see you. And with Emilio, obviously, the brother of the Escobar from the South. I'm really excited <laughs> to be all together. I don't know, my journey is just like that of any founder. It's always a little unique. So I'm born and raised in the Bay Area, so east side of San Jose and you know, as a kid, I was a bit of a child hacker, so I always got myself into a lot of trouble. Escalated up until the point where I almost went to jail and somehow came out of that. And I went to Berkeley for undergrad and then I went to Symantec. Well, I always call it the University of California Symantec for postgrad studies, where I studied under all the actual, some of the industry's kind of finest in terms of people that are really good with product management and really know their stuff. And there I went to Force Point and finally left the same day as my boss to go and found Dope Security. So kind of big circle of different products, different backgrounds, different customers, large, small, everything to build something that can be different. I think that's something you and Emilio have in common, by the way. Like Emilio, if I remember in Puerto Rico, you had some hacking Hacking yeah, days. <laughs> except I'm better than Kunal because I was never close to going to jail. So, well, you know, Emilio, I had to learn the rules somehow, right? What are the three best rules of hacking? Do we know what they are? It's not illegal until you get caught. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Also, deny, deny, deny. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I love the. I almost went to jail and landed in Berkeley. That's a that's a <laughs> that's, that's a huge fast forward there. Soft yeah. landing you got there. Some golden golden parachute for sure. <laughs> Let's dive into. I mean, you talked about how you got to Dope Security, but tell everyone what does Dope Security actually do? So ultimately, Dope is a word that's here in the Bay Area. We say every five minutes, right? And we say it every five minutes because it's a very colloquial thing to say. Hey. That car is dope. Emilio, you just got a new car. That car is dope. Or this movie Top Gun 2 is dope. Whatever it is, there's a lot of passion that went into building those things. And in California, and for those of us that are not from here, it's like, you know, whether it's the movie industry or some of the biggest companies in general in the world that have been built in the Bay Area, it's like there's a lot of passion that went into that. And dope is passion. So Dope Secure is a set of individuals, including myself, obviously, that we came together and we wanted to be really proud of what we built. All of us came from huge cybersecurity companies. And we decided, hey, let's take what we were doing in the past and redesign it for 2023 and make the best possible user experience you could ever imagine built into an amazing product. So it's kind of like fashion cybersecurity, guys. Because <laughs> we also make t-shirts and jackets. But the product is really pristine. So that's what I guess I'm very proud of. In fact, if you were all next to me, I would show it to you yourself, you know, so you can see how easy it is to use and demo and get up and running. I do remember that about seeing the first time you kind of showed me a demo of, you know, one of the dashboards. And I was like, wow, this actually looks cool. It looks like a video game, you know, and, and it looks like uh, something that you'd want to look at on a daily basis, which frankly, you don't find very often in the security world. And so I think that's a fresh take. Yeah, but they're also useful too, right? Because I there have been security products that have a lot of 
flashy UI, but it's just a bunch of fluff. So I like the fact that it's good, but it's also very useful. A lot of people ask us, hey, what do you do? So our company is like a trilogy, right? It's like Star Wars trilogy. So Secure Web Gateway, CASB Neural, and Private Access. So we kind of say it's a, a new swig, CASB Strikes Back, and Return of the Private Access. So it's a Star Wars trilogy. I love that. Well, we want to get into those components. So first off, like, let's just describe, you know, of course, Gartner comes up with the best terminology ever. Uh, and uh, they've decided to call the category that Dope Security is in Secure Access Server Edge, or otherwise known as SASE. So what the heck is that? The Service Edge, Secure Access Services, SASE, SSE, like pretty much these products started to get purchased together back in 2016, right? So for example, if I was trying to control what web access my device had, then you also would want to control your SaaS application a little deeper, or you want to at least have some sort of hooks or API hooks into your SaaS application, like let's call it Office 365 or Google, so you could understand what is going on in there. And then naturally, like this idea of, hey, let me allow someone to only access a specific resource behind a firewall, and that was that whole ZTNA VPN replacement kind of a thing. And honestly, the whole use case in the beginning was that you'd have an exchange on-prem server and you didn't want someone to have to VPN in to access their email. That was like the number one use case. And don't let anyone tell you any differently. If you go and look at the old videos from 2016, 17, that's what the use case was. And somehow SD-WAN got into that bucket, the buffet, let's call it. And the buffet of products, it went from four to three, which is why people call it Security Service Edge. And SSE is really what we do as you think about it. But I usually stick to the nomenclature that I think everybody knows, which is Secure Web Gateway, which is a proxy essentially, CASB, which is securing your SaaS apps, et cetera, and finally private access, which is, hey, I want to access some server sitting behind a firewall that's not publicly accessible. You mentioned ZTNA in there. And so for those who don't know, like how does what you just described differ from zero trust security? Is there a difference? Is it the same? Like, are we using two different buzzwords? Like what's the deal there? <laughs> it's a good question. Emilio. You know, Emilio should probably answer this. Yeah, I was going to ask, like actually what is zero trust security? Because uh, it's been thrown around quite a bit lately. That's why I try not to call it that. I call it private access because you're trying to access some private server that's not publicly accessible. And I call it Secure Web Gateway because it's like, hey, let's create a gateway where you can control and filter what you can access. Those are more relevant to me. But ultimately, if you really think of what is zero trust network access, fancy, fancy, fancy way of saying that, hey, Emilio can access this internal JIRA server, but the entire sales team at Datadog cannot. I mean, that's really what we're saying here because if I'm an attacker and I go in and log in through a VPN, then I have access to everything inside the infra versus if I used, quote unquote, a ZTNA solution or a private access, essentially, maybe that device could only access the specific set of systems that it's supposed to access or the user is supposed to be able to access. There's an overall definition of what zero trust is. And I guess that the TLDR is it comes from the Google project, Beyond Corp, but Ideally, I think it's been applied to anything that just reduces access from a, if you get in, you have access to everything from a network standpoint, or if you belong to a group, you have access to everything that that group belongs to, to a way to actually being able to apply certain granular rules. There's some other applications we could be like, hey, I can only access my 
corporate email if I log in from a corporate provided laptop and it has to be up to date and things like that. Where Kunal's product is focusing on is more about reducing that access to application, right? So there's that SCT element to it. So it seems to be like a bigger term used for anything that is reduction. Why do you think this convergence, Kunal, you mentioned SD-WAN there. Why do you think this convergence between networking security is accelerating right now? Was it primarily because of work from home and, and COVID and that being the main contributor? Or do you think that that was always going to happen and that was just a mild accelerant to that trend? There's definitely accelerants all over the place, right? Like if we think about back in 2012, 13, people would access things from home. And then the idea of, hey, let me make sure that my security software works as well out of the office as it does in the office is very important. But ultimately, there's an increased knowledge or perception of problems when it comes to security in general. If we look at like 10, 15 years ago, people would say, hey, maybe I need some sort of endpoint management software to go in and manage my my systems. But hey, I have an endpoint AV technology sitting on my device, I'm sorted. But then like the advent of an ADFS expanded over to a proper IAM solution. And now it's common word, Okta, right? Or Azure AD. Like single sign-on is such an important component. But I would say another one is like an RSA token, right? If you look at an RSA token, it's hardware token, six-digit code, and that TOTP device translated to like a semantic VIP, which is actually incidentally one of my old products, <laughs> right? I mean, and it became a push notification and it expands, expands. And you just think about it, it's like today, these things are almost taken for granted, right? It's like, if you're not using a single sign-on tool. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. Whoa, how are you not doing this? And that world has expanded. So obviously, if all these companies are using it, then now... A network security or SESI is is huge and will be part of that as well. Yeah. What could potentially slow down the growth of this sector? <laughs> I think ultimately there's a lot of laptops and devices that people use on a daily basis for work. And those might change, right? But I think the majority of companies I speak with, they have a need for a tool. And as long as you're not overblowing things out of proportion and you're building something that works really well. For me, that's what I saw work time and time again at a company like Symantec, building a franchise business that's like the Taylor Swift of cybersecurity that anyone could listen to, anyone could use. This is what we do at Dope Security. That's why we do it. We don't build like one sliver of an add-on feature that anybody could build. But I also wonder if the increased adoption of cloud, right? And, not, and it's not like running in the cloud, but it's more of like using cloud services like SaaS and things like that where... Where I believe I see that more of a growth factor for the SASE space as well, right? Because then you get into the whole CASB and all of that stuff that we haven't, I know we haven't broken down the components yet, but I see more elements for growth, less so elements for slowdown. There's also an element going back to the historical thing that Kunal was saying around resiliency and disaster recovery and things like that, right? So definitely COVID brought it to life where what happens if you have to send your entire workforce to work from home and all they were using were desktops in the office. I'm not going to name names, but I've seen environments like that where they had a BCP documented, fully documented, fully tested, and then COVID happened and then they were struggling to find solutions. So I think there is always going to be that element of disaster recovery that SASE plays into as well. Let's dive into breaking down the components. And so I think both of you will have a lot to say in these different areas. So Kunal, I guess, first, starting off with what you mentioned, Secure Web Gateway, SWIG, what are they and kind of how are they evolving with what Dope's doing, for example? 
it's like parental controls for your employees, right? You don't want your employee to access a malicious website. You don't want your employee to access piracy. You don't want your employee to access pornography on their work laptop. So that's ultimately what made this so popular for the last two, three decades, right? Blue coat proxy SGs and WebSense on-prem swigs, they were the gold standards when it came to these technologies inside your office. And you would install it in a closet somewhere and then obviously all your employees couldn't access the stuff when they could. And obviously there's an evolution of it, right? If you think about it, there was a box in a data center. The most popular vendors today just took that box and took it out of the office and then put it in a data center and called it cloud. And what we've done is we've just gotten rid of the box entirely and just now it just software that's on your laptop, which is like semi-novel concept, but very, I'm sure both of you can agree that it's pretty natural for this to happen like this. And that's really what it is. And there's other terminologies like SSL inspection. So making sure you can see what's going on. I can get a bit more fancy, like, for example, if Emilio is using Google at Datadog, how do you prevent people from accessing their personal Gmails on their work laptops. Or for example, what we do, which is really cool and unique, which nobody else does is like, let me tell you what AWS account IDs are being used, what emails are being used with Dropbox, what accounts are being used, things like that. Where do firewalls play into this then? You mentioned WAFs earlier, right? So where do firewalls play into this new sassy security wave? Ultimately, that's even the most fundamental, right? If you look at a Juniper Networks or a Palo Alto, their reason why I firmly believe that these companies are such incredible businesses is because they are foundational technologies. If you're going to go in and install a data center, for example, at Forcepoint, we use Juniper switches and things like that to go in and configure a pop. So we're using their technologies. If I'm going to go in and build something or an office or of any kind of data center, then I may be using an NGFW from Palo Alto and then the box. Like if you're going to go and use a Cisco ASA box, for example. I Truth be told, I've only configured a Cisco ASA box. So I'm not really the right person to ask, hey, how do you configure anything? They're pretty complicated. But again, they're foundational technologies that are a big part of network security. What we're doing is a little different though, right? It's a, almost like a step above that. Make no mistake. Yeah, so I think there are two elements that I think maybe I can think of is a huge element of firewall is inbound traffic, not outbound. So protecting anything that's coming in. However, some of these firewalls, like Palo Alto, for example, they do have that box approach to secure web gateway as well, because then they can break in SSL in the office and you can do URL filtering. They already have a, an entry point in the door. So by offering that box in the data center so that yeah. you can do a secure web gateway, for example, it's like you know a happy marriage of a simple convenience. Like if I already know Emilio, I'm already selling him a bunch of NGFWs from Palo. Like why not try to get him to buy my... SWIG as well, which is called Prisma Access. Yeah, and if you really look at it, the packet inspection is the same, whether it's inbound or outbound traffic. They're still breaking SSL, inspecting the traffic, and then applying rules to it. So yeah, it makes sense for them to offer that as well. Yeah, let's move into the next leg of the stool. So CASB, Cloud Access Security Brokers, what are they and describe kind of their fit? And also, how does that fit compared to SWIGs? Because we're saying these are part of this solution. So now, why do they nest next to SWIGs? Yeah, so it's funny, not everybody knows this, but the CASB started out as like a glorified shadow IT discovery tool. So you would take your logs from like an ASA box or like a Palo Alto box and you'd upload them into your CASB and it was like an Excel sheet. 
it would go through all the URLs and domains and be like, all right, these are box, these are Dropbox. And it'd be like, oh, you're using the following shadow IT apps in your thing. So like we have that capability already in our swig. And to be fair, again, maybe Emilio, double check me if you're wrong. This probably should have just been part of a swig in the first place. Like it's really not that much. Then naturally that got a little commoditized because, you know, why not? And then somebody said to themselves, wait, we have a new brilliant idea. What we can do is we can build a CASB proxy, which allows you to control what your device can do on the actual SaaS application, which is cool. I mean, maybe you want to block someone uploading content to their personal Gmail as they email it to someone, as an example. But these providers, these CASB providers, they didn't really have very good DLP at the time. So they relied on, as an example, these enterprise DLP products like a Forcepoint or, or a Semantic Vontu basically come to mind to do that and accomplish that. So it kind of became this, hey, you can control some things, but it was a science project because everybody would have been using, as an example, Zscaler. So look, why would they go in and use your CASB proxy? And then finally, that changed to a CASB API where these SaaS providers in 2017 really got mature APIs. And what People did is, hey, let me try to help you understand like, what data is public, for example, in your Google Drive or Dropbox or Box or Slack or something like that. Let me give you some sort of idea of what those things are and apply controls. And then finally, the last stage, which was probably the end of this CASB story is, let me take in all of the audit logs that are happening inside of there and become like this cloud sim of SaaS applications. You just covered like five different Gartner categories and just talking about Caspi, by the way. Let me just point it out why this technology hasn't really taken off what we're seeing newer evolutions of because you literally covered five different categories in one product family. Well, that's what happens when you don't have PMF, you know? <laughs> Uh-oh, the, the debt scope guys are going to kill me today. <laughs> if I don't wake up tomorrow, you know who to call. <laughs> <laughs> We already covered uh, zero trust actually a little bit earlier. So the final area that has been kind of showing up in, in some of these diagrams that the companies put out in this space is remote browser isolation. So we just talked about uh, the private access a little bit earlier, and now you're, you're talking about this remote browser isolation thing. Like, how does that play into things? And Emilio, this is one that I'm curious about you. I mean, how often is this getting used within the enterprises that you've worked at? Like, it just seems like it's a very restrictive sort of thing, but could all of you want to start? So RBI is something that there's a purchase fireglass made at Symantec that was essentially RBI technology at, at Force Point, there was an OEM of a company called Ericom. I would never use an RBI technology personally. If Emilio is going to buy an RBI technology, I will be very surprised tomorrow. And ultimately there needs to be an initiator, right? And there's two initiators. Initiator one is that you're clicking the link in your email. And rather than being directly visiting that website, it's going to go to a isolated version of that, which is a picture of the website. And the second use case is, for example, you're using a secure web gateway like Dope. You take the unknown category and create a custom blog page that says, hey, this website is unknown. So if you'd like to actually visit that because of whatever reason, then you have to click this link, which will go to just to give a Menlo a plug, isolate.menlosecurity.com slash malicious.com. Right. I mean, that's ultimately what it is. And it's just difficult for companies to implement. We saw very low uptick. I mean, obviously, if you'll talk to a salesperson. I'm sure they'll tell you differently. But the reality is that across all companies, it's very rarely implemented. Sometimes there are security solutions that are built as a panacea or, or they actually end up being a panacea to a problem that the question is, is it really there? 
So RBI, for example, we are a SaaS-only company. So no, I wouldn't use something like that because the experience will most likely be very horrible for employees. Plus, I actually think the browsers of today, the modern browsers actually do a good job at proper process sandbox isolation. And would a company that is just doing that do it better than a company that has actually been in the browser space for so long? I, I don't know. To me, it's like, what problem is it actually solving, right? It's like, oh, if a malware gets deployed, it is not on your endpoint or what have you. I'm more of the person who thinks about a threat model where if your endpoint is compromised and build your security from there, rather than like the endpoint is the end all for your security boundary or protection. So, so no, it wouldn't be a piece of technology that I'll be interested in. You mentioned enterprise browser. Would that be something that you would adopt? What, what even is an enterprise browser? I'm, I'm kind of curious. I've never heard that concept. So I, I don't know. That caught me by surprise. I guess the best way I can describe it is imagine if I fork the Chromium project and then I build bells and whistles around it and say, okay, I'm going to add some security specific features to a browser that Say it comes with like dope security integrated, right? Where you don't have to have the dope agent installed, but the browser itself already does what the dope agent does, right? And that sort of mindset. But then they claim to have isolation done better than, than Chromium itself. But then when you look at the code, it's actually Chromium's isolation running in the background. It actually, where I see a big play of maybe even for RBI is if you have a large third-party presence say like a support team that are logging in from everywhere in the world, maybe not RBI, because what are you actually protecting in the sense of you're not protecting their endpoint? I think maybe enterprise browser could be where I've seen it apply is more as a Citrix type of replacement where you don't need VDI if you have an enterprise type of environment. We don't have that sort of thing. So no, it wouldn't be a thing for us either. I think Emilio completely hit ahead. Chromium fork, go in, add some security features, add some administration on it and build a sales motion around it. Like recently, most recently, acquisition semi-announced online for Palo Alto and Talon. And ultimately, I think that's the $600 million number you're talking about, Emilio. And it's good. And I think it just depends on the company you're selling to. Exactly what Emilio said. There's this VDI-ish kind of replacement thing that exists, but you can't really claim, I think it's difficult to logically claim that, hey, yeah, you can replace a CrowdStrike with, by having an enterprise browser. Yeah. I think that would be semi-tough. I want to move actually into a section that's kind of more around, you know, where we are with the enterprise adoption, the challenges with this area of security and, and kind of almost where things are going in the future here. So just to start it off, we've talked about, you know, why it's important, right? We've talked about the components, but what about when it comes to actual enterprises using these products? Like, what does that look like? Is it the nine-month implementation cycle and admins having to go in and set up a bunch of things and stuff like that? Do they need other products to be set up to even be able to use an SSE or, or SASE solution? Like, how do you kind of think about that, Kunal? So I have been blessed at Symantec and, and for some big companies to do a lot of these types of things where we're going to a customer, having a POC kickoff and da 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 And one of the most fundamentally kind of backwards things, I think, is that a lot of these technologies take a lot of work to set up on the back-end side. So sometimes there's a manual script required, there's this, there's that, and the customer doesn't really see any of this. All they do is they, like after you know weeks and weeks of meetings, they end up getting access to a sandbox environment that they can test the product out and do a POC with. And then eventually that POC environment has to be trashed when you eventually purchase the product and then you get to actually use it. So it's a very weird 
old school way of thinking. My mentality has always been about how do you reduce that process down? And I still think to this day that you're probably going to have to have a couple of conversations with, if I was at Datadog, Emilio, his team, his greater team, so that everyone can get convinced that this is something we want to do and build a project around it, and then go in and try it. However, when they want to try it, they go to our website, they click a button, they log in with their 365 or Google account, they're in, they can download the endpoint, do its thing, they're in business in five minutes. Yesterday, for example, we had a customer go in and after weeks and weeks of actually going through legal review and DPA and everything like that, in a few minutes, they installed their first endpoint and imported almost 400,000 users over into our product for policy and group and import and authentication. It, it was insane. And I'm so proud to say that they were able to do that in 10 minutes. Otherwise, you'd have to configure your skim, talk to the salesperson, talk to the engineering team. And it's a testament to how I think 2023 onward or this Gen 3 of cybersecurity is going to be versus the way of the past. Yeah. I actually think in this day and age, if your product doesn't have a self-onboarding flow, it's going to see a short lifetime. And that should be actually be a principle to any product entrepreneur out there. Curious though, one thing that, that I wanted to ask you and just so curious on your thought, and you mentioned it, is there has to be an element of single sign-on at the very least for the, for the customers to think about, okay, maybe SASE is the next step. Or do you see people signing up to this without even like, having the basics of identity security in place. In today's day and age, things have changed a little bit, right? Almost every single customer out there is using 365 or Google. So for us as a company, I'm a big fan of giving SSO for free. So you cannot sign into our product. You cannot try it. You can't even do anything with it without using a 365 or Google account. In fact, there is one government department on the other side of the world that uses our product and they actually use an exchange on-prem, but they had to create a special account specifically to access our product. They liked it that much that they did. But otherwise, every single other customer, they log in and they're in business. And then if they're not using Azure AD, for example, it'll reroute you from 365 to Okta and back. So SSO is there for free. Big fan of SSO for free, by the way. I do not think a company should be charging for SAML authentication. So really, really big thumbs down, let's call it, for any startup or company that charges for this. That is not required. That's not cool. It's not okay to just charge more for like basic sanity security. Yeah. Our companies have still us an enterprise queue. So I, I agree with you on that. Yeah. Yes, exactly. One of my competitors, Dscaler, does that. So just FYI. <laughs> I don't I don't know who that competitor is. You know, it's it's kind of surprising, you know. <laughs> yeah, it starts with a D, so you wouldn't know. <laughs> You talked about what Dope is doing, right? Of making sure that it's super easy to onboard and sign up. And I agree with you. You want the lagging part to be on the customer side, not because of you, right? So they're legal and their red tape, whatever is fine. But once it's all signed, you want them to sign up quickly. Any other challenges that you think enterprises have with existing SASE solutions that you can talk about? I mean, I think you've covered a few, but like what are the current challenges that you see enterprise having with SASE solutions right now? Well, there's like these dope principles, right? That dope signature experience, which is not really unique to us as a company. I think everyone should embody these things. Obviously design, super important. UX, being able to onboard, incredibly important. Having a first class experience where you can go in and ask a question, but the person that's answering you on the support side is a product engineer. Every single one of our support crews is answered by someone who's a product engineer. 
it's not just some frontline support person. And honestly, it's not really their fault. You have all these companies that go and they hire a team that's less educated, that doesn't know the product very well, that never worked on the product before or developed on it. And they're just answering queries. That makes no sense. We have really educated people there so that you get a luxurious experience when you're using Dopamine. This is not unique to us. This should be what any company does, by the way. It seems like some organizations, when they see, especially in security, when they see something that looks like the tools that they use in productivity workflows or stuff, it's almost not what they're expecting. They're almost expecting it to be a certain way. It needs to take a certain amount of time to implement. It needs to go through a certain amount of steps and integrations and connections and things like that for the value to be had. Is that something that you agree with? I don't know. I'm just curious. I feel like we should be having more end user specific, more tools that people can use, but are people caught up in this traditional way of doing things? There's some truth to that. It's also because where people's expectations are, right? Because of their prior experience with other products or because of the majority of the products that are out there, they haven't treated UX as the first order of a thing to solve for. So we're used to crappy UIs, long time for implementation. It's okay for large enterprises to require an SE or a TAM to help with onboarding, but it's better if, if you don't, and the SE or the TAM are there to help you with more advanced stuff. If getting from point A to point A.5 requires a TAM, then we got a problem, I think. Well, this is what people are used to, right? So all these big enterprise software products in security we use, they haven't really built much into the workflows themselves. So it's funny because you say that, and I agree, there's a little bit of that distrust of, oh, you mean I just installed this and I can just log in and it does what it's supposed to do? Prove it. So this is where your go-to-market and where your sales team needs to be really good at is A, realizing that you're going to get that sarcasm type of thing back at you, but then be able to respond to it. And it also depends on who you're talking to. If you're talking to more of a forward-thinking, tech-leaning enterprises, they might be a little bit more of a better adoption because guess what? They're already using the dev tooling that this thing simulates or looks like, or they might be like, okay, this is cool. And yeah, I see it. I understand it. I guess it depends on who you're talking to and where they work, where you're going to get some of that resistance. But I'm actually interested in, and I know we've kind of talked and named some names already, but... There's dope and there's current implementation of SASE. I mean, I can tell you a personal account of some challenges that I have with SASE, <laughs> even though I'm not a customer of a SASE product yet, where my Wi-Fi network is blamed for being offline all the time when it's not my ubiquity equipment. It works great. What other challenges do you see? Is it are there data residency challenges? Do you see other players having to hit that, cross that hurdle that maybe dope doesn't have to cross? So these organizations, every single one out there, let's just name them off. Zisco, Netscope, Semantic Force Point, Cisco Umbrella, and a few others, right? All these organizations pretty much work exactly the same way. You take your device, you install some software on there. Don't let anyone tell you you're not going to install software on there. You will install a software agent on there. And it will reroute or backhaul all of your internet traffic to their data center. And then from there, it goes to its destination. And ultimately, this architecture is what causes the foremost issue is because you're rerouting the traffic and people think, well, is it really that bad? And it's like, yes, it is. Because these were not designed to go in and take the world's internet traffic from your device. I'll give you a simple example. None of these companies support HTTP2 properly. And today, like 80% of your internet traffic that you're accessing is HTTP2, which is weird. 
So there's things like that. There's also just the general idea of like, if you're sitting in LA, why would you send your internet traffic to New York for processing? And somebody might say, oh yeah, but that's not true. There's a data center in San Francisco, but it's dependent on what your egress IP address is, right? Like, or your DNS IP address is maybe. You do a DNS lookup, it goes from you to here. And it's sending you to the wrong place. We actually found through research in my previous organizations, it's like 66% of traffic. It was not going to the nearest data center. By building how we've built it, think of the problem as a one of one, right? If we're installing software, we're installing it on one piece of equipment versus hi, I need to now build a server software that's going to sit in a data center that needs to handle 100,000 concurrent users that are downloading the latest patch Tuesday updates. Adobe is a great example of this. Adobe, it pushes out on my system at least like 10 gigs worth of updates a week. I don't know why it's done that recently, but it's a lot. And so if me and Erica, who's our head of design, or Ashley, who's doing marketing, we're like the three people that use and I know this because of dope, because it's on all our systems. There's literally 30 to 40 gigabytes being downloaded on a weekly basis just from there. And I mean, that's a lot of content. And so that architecture is difficult to do it. Like we we're doing like a 10, $15 million hardware refresh at force point, just of new hardware and stuff. It's crazy. And we just don't have to deal with any of that. So if you think about, let's call it CrowdStrike, what was the disruption that CrowdStrike did? Or what was the disruption that Silent did back in the day? Hey, don't go in and deploy your SEP on-prem with like an Oracle DB in the background. You don't need to do any of that. Just sign up online, download the agent, and you're on your way. And the demo was beautiful. Never forget Silence's demo. You know, they just went in and they're like, oh, here's an old version of our agent. We're going to take the latest WannaCry, put on the system, and Silence caught it. And everyone in the audience was like, holy moly. Because the salesperson at Silence who joined McAfee and then came to Semantic was like, Kunal, it's very simple. There was a malware problem. We got rid of that malware problem. And that's the type of cybersecurity mentality that I've grown up with is how do you fix someone's actual issue? And you know that's what makes me really proud about Dope is that that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, but also from the enterprise implementation side, one of the things I'm comfortable with, and I know we talked about it a little bit earlier, is like we want to do these policies for what people can browse or not, but I don't have an issue with people checking their personal emails or doing their banking on their corporate endpoint. Because what I would hate to do is have that person have to go somewhere else to do it and then come back to work. And that's a huge distraction from work for very little security gain, in my opinion. But then having for me to explain to the employees at Datadog for why am I sending your banking traffic to somebody else's data center? What do they do with it? And all that are just too many questions that we're probably not going to be willing to answer for sure. Correct. So who do you sell to? SASE sells, it seems like a security buy, but it's also, if I'm a good IT person, I would actually think of SASE as well, because I'm being told by security, hey, get a hold of like shadow SAS or shadow IT. You mentioned that from a Caspi standpoint, or we don't want people browsing porn IT, do something about it. Who's your buyer? And then who has to deal with it after they buy SASE? So ultimately, I think the CISO is definitely the buyer. There's not been an organization where we've gone in, in all my history of working in cyber, where you're like, you're mostly talking to someone in the security team, because that's the entry point into the organization. Usually that person has to maintain somewhat of a experience and whether you're approaching them, we're a very channel first organization. So most of our channel partners and bars, they retain relationships with Emilio's of the world to go in and do that. And then that becomes our entry point. Our technology gets deployed by IT, but gets managed typically by a security team. So it's kind of a mixture of both 
joint responsibility. And I think all cybersecurity tools can be looked at a joint ownership model. If you look at even a developer security tool, there's the security team, like an example, the Emilios of the world. And then there's the development team that's actually going in and developing the product, right? And sometimes those can be semi one and the same, just like the IT security team can be one and the same. But there's a kind of dual ownership model. And the model we have is that's one of the reasons why we approach it the way we do and who we sell to. It definitely makes sense. And usually what I see a lot of security products fail, and I think I've written about this, is I'm the buyer, but then somebody else has to deal with the pain. And I'm away of the conversation. My job is done. I got the control in. See, so happy, and then I have a very pissed off IT team on the end. So, which actually leads to the next question. I think is, you know, you've been talking a lot about prioritizing UX, which I think is great. Do you actually see a change in that philosophy from the enterprise software side, or should we, ex as buyers or even even investors, should we expect that only from like the up and coming companies, and we should give up on big enterprises doing anything about it? If I'm a big company and I've built my technology. There's a huge overhaul requirement to go in and change your UI. First off, you need a really talented UI designer. So in our case, we have Erica. So Erica and I have worked together for six years. We worked at multiple products, Semantic, Forcepoint, and here. And every single time we work together, you need a PM that knows design too, so that you can draw out the flows, work things out. And unfortunately, most of these companies, what they do is they end up doing a skin uplift. The bar at the top was a little darkish. They've now made it a little lightish. And it's a skin change, which is like a CSS change. That's it. You're not actually fundamentally rethinking how the UX should be. And a lot of that flexibility comes from lack of technology. I mean, if you have today's technology, which is like I'm using a React or a Next.js front end, and that's talking to my back end, and both of those are very modifiable. I'll give you a good example. We can push our code to our front end all around the world in call it 10, 15 minutes or whatever, right? That's beautiful. But every product I've ever worked on doesn't even have that capability. I mean, a lot of them are on-prem. Some of them say they're multi-tenant, but they're really just a hosted instance. There's no way you're going to be able to do something like this. So it's just not possible no matter what anyone tells you. Now, that's what makes a startup able to do it. And if they focus on design from day one, our first hire was Erica. We were sitting in the Voyager coffee shop building designs, you know? I mean, that's the cool thing. And when you have the new age of cybersecurity companies. You said it best, the fashion of cybersecurity. And that's certainly something that I think we all hope will come to this industry. And I think we are seeing it. We've seen some companies, you know, won't mention names, but have beautiful dashboards. And that goes and does very well in this market in terms of showing something that people can use and show to others to get value from. So. You definitely have this change. The world is moving towards folks once upon a time that were CISOs, they're maybe retiring or moving out. And then there's new people that are coming that are not going to accept the old way of working. They're not going to accept installing a ton of stuff and having to have someone get a PhD or a training module in a specific product area. I mean, that's the way it used to work. I mean, obviously I'm speaking semi from experience, but like if you install Cisco ASA, you would really, really, really need to read the manual and you probably need some help doing it. But that's okay, right? Because again, they're foundational network technologies. But for these kinds of stuff that we're building, I mean, there's no reason why you need a manual at all.
I'm hoping I don't have to read that manual anytime soon uh, for, the, for the Cisco thing. That's better I, you than me. But. <laughs> I, Amelia, haven't you configured one before? I'm sure. You know, um, it's, it's been many years. So yeah. <laughs> that is uh, that is something I hope I hope I don't have to do anytime soon. But uh, this was a great discussion. I think we covered a ton of ground. So is there anything you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think the only plug I will say is I know a lot of buyers and investors listen to to this podcast or they listen to us is if you're on the investor side, definitely advocate for better UX and focus on the UX. And if you're a buyer side, definitely demand better UX and never pay for SSO. So there you go. I love it. <laughs> on that note, we'll sign off. But thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate it.